Shalom, shalom, and welcome to Bet Ariel Wednesday Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, first, our hearts and prayers are for the people of Ukraine, the children, the elderly, the mothers, the fathers. At this very moment, there's a harsh, there's, there are harsh fightings in, in the street of Kiev and other cities in Ukraine. I just heard in the news that the Russian powerful army has been bombing some civilian buildings. And here we are, not able to help these people knowing they are suffering. Th th this is what... Uh, the, uh, the writer of a powerful psalm, 10, must have felt when he wrote, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The writer must have seen how the pride, the hafty, disregarded God and his laws, and how they, they just went on a rampage. But this is not the whole psalm. This is not the whole psalm. The writer saw behind this time, and, uh, and at the end, this is what he said. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his hand, his land. O oh Lord, you, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. Well, 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 there's a bigger plan behind all these things. And, and while there are many things we do not understand now, and, and while there is war and injustices, this some help us to look up to God who will surely render justice at the proper time. And it is not true that we are powerless. On the contrary, we have a weapon that cannot be matched by any country. That is prayer. Prayer. God is the king and he hears all our petition. And this is the time to present them, to present our petitions, our prayers to him by praying for the defenseless, for the, the children and the families there in Ukraine. And I know there are many miracles, by the way, that are being witnessed right there at this time. Something actually I will share this coming Shabbat. But the Lord is working there and is answering many prayers. Now, of course, before we, we continue our quest I into the, this book of Deuteronomy, before we start, let us first take an important question Sharon will read for us. Are Christians, and I am referring to Gentile believers, are they now part of Israel? It's written in Galatians 3.7, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Well, since I am of faith, that means that I am a son of Abraham. Does that mean that I am considered the new Israel, the true Israel? And is this a faulty deduction? Thank you. Uh, this is indeed a very faulty deduction for not even the, f the all physical sons of Abraham are considered Jews. Let's remember that some are Ishmaelites, who are Ishmaelites. Others are the Amalekites, who are descendants of the Edomites, who turned out to be the emblem of anti-Semitism. And very often, they were the first one to attack Israel throughout the history of the scriptures. There is then a difference between being a spiritual son of Abraham by faith and a physical son of Abraham who are the Jewish people. And this is Paul's argument in Galatians chapter 3. Let us read the preceding verse which will put us in the context of Galatians 3 verses 6 and 7. It says, just as Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are 
of faith are sons of Abraham. Why does Paul begin with Abraham when speaking of faith? He could have begun his argument with Adam or with Noah, for salvation was always by faith from the very beginning. However, he starts with Abraham because at the time some Judaizers were trying to convince the Galatians Gentiles to convert to Pharisaic Judaism by obeying the Mosaic law or their interpretation of the Mosaic law, and thus becoming sons of Abraham. However, Paul reminds them that Abraham was saved 430 years before the law was given, and being a son of Abraham then and today means that one has the faith, the saving faith that Abraham displayed, and it is unrelated with the physical descendants. Paul further emphasized that being sons of Abraham does not require conversion into rabbinical Judaism here and in many other letters he wrote. So we read in verse 7 that the true sons of Abraham are those who have faith in Yeshua, both Jews and Gentiles. You know, today many have interpreted the words in verse 7. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham in many ways like these first centuries uh, Judaizers that once a Gentile becomes a believer, he becomes Israel. He becomes a Jew. They believe that the church is now Israel and that all believers are now called Jews. The, the, these also do not get their history right. And this belief, I want to tell you, has caused many problems to the Jewish people throughout the last 2,000 years. Because this belief is a product of an anti-Jewish bias, even anti-Semitism, and it is very rampant even today. It is disguised under the doctrines of Amelianism or Postmelianism, a Catholic doctrine that is now being adopted by more and more evangelical churches, and especially here in our province of Quebec. I will end with the biblical definition of a Jew. Today, the people uh, or the nation that came forth from Abraham is called the Jewish nation or the Jewish people. A very simple but biblical definition as to who or what is a Jew is as follows. A Jew is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, and all such descendants are Jews. It is important to remember that it is not only of Abraham that the Ishmaelites, for the Ishmaelites and other nations also came from him. Yet they are not considered Jews, nor did they ever consider themselves as Jews. Likewise, it is not only through Isaac, for the Edomites, the Amalekites, and other nations came through him, but only through Jacob, through whom came the twelve tribes of Israel, and which constitute the Jewish nation today. Thus, the son of Abraham today, is, as, as it is written here, is one of faith, but nothing to do with the physical part. And on, on that last note, I would like to add this point. The blessings of the land promised given to Abraham and confirmed through the Davidic covenant are given to the physical Jewish descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This, of course, is an important tangent. There's an important tangent that is to this question, which we can address at other times. Let us go now to our study of Deuteronomy, where we have looked at the section on tithing, uh, on giving. Not, not only giving money, which is much useful, but also giving time, giving hospitality, giving care and love to others. We have seen how the scripture sees these things as a great 
privilege and also a source of blessings, not only for those who receive it, of course, but also and mainly actually for those who are giving. For thus, they become partners with God in providing service to others. We are, by the way, on page 15 on your handout under Deuteronomy 15, section A. You can always download the handout from our website, bethariel.ca. We have also seen the year of the Shemitah. That is, every seven years, all depths are clear. Shemitah comes from the word shamot, to abundant, meaning to abundant, to live, to, to life follow. This is when no one owes anything to anyone. That is, every seven years becomes a complete and fresh start. Might sound, again, unrealistic, but there lies the secret of a healthy society. What happens, actually, when every seven years, all debts are cleared? Great things happen. Even, you know, the poor are no more. See how the Spirit explains the great benefit of the Shemitah. Let's begin by reading verse 4. However, there shall be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. There would then be no more poor people. If the law was followed, poverty would be eliminated. And what we read in verse 4 is only possible if a condition is fulfilled. See verse 5, how it begins. Only if. Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. Should the Israelites have followed God's word, Israel w would have been the most powerful economical nation in all history. However, they did not follow his word. And God knew this very well, of course. And they would not, they would not follow through with this law. He knew that because right beginning in verse 7 starts the law concerning the poor. As if between verses 1 and 6 was really somehow the wishful thinking for love believes all. But beginning in verse 7, God omniscience tells us that it would never work because the people would not follow the law. So at this point, the law then becomes a damage control law. Notice the contrasting statements in verse 11 compared with verse 4. In verse 4 we read, however, there shall be no more poor among you. But in verse 11 we read, for the poor will never cease from the land. Why? Because they would not follow the, the, the word. If the conditions of verse 5 were followed, they would obey the voice of the Lord their God. Then there would be no poor. Everybody would be rich and there would be harmony between everyone. This is another way of telling us that the Israelites did not follow the word of God. But this section again looks so much like the life of many believers. We all know what will bring peace and prosperity in our lives. There's no secret. The Bible clearly states it. We know about reading. We know about studying, changing and transforming our lives. We know about discipline, uh, dis having discipline in our lives. We know where not to go, what not to watch, what not to listen to. But it is so much easier to follow the path of the dwellers of this world, as Revelation calls this world here. How many begin so well with a life of sanctification, but I see them some years later back to square one. 
with no growth, no change in their lives. Again, these historical events are related to us, not that we see Israel as being so undisciplined and rebellious, but so that we ourselves uh, can see ourselves, that is, and move on to a better and richer life. It is then so interesting to follow the way this chapter is written. The first words again were like a wish, a desire to see harmony in a society, and it is as if God then remembered, so to speak, that they will not abide with these laws. So knowing that the poor will always be with us, we and the Israelites of the time are commanded to take good care of them. Let us begin to see how the Lord tells us how to take care of them. Verses 7 to 8, Deuteronomy 15. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not burden, you shall not harden your heart, nor shut your hand from your poor brother. But you shall open your hand wide to him, and willingly lend him sufficient for his needs, whatever he needs. This is a commandment from the Lord. We ought to take care of the poor, and this is something that God takes, takes to heart. Right? It is even a test of love in us. And since God is love, it is a test of the presence of God really in us. Of course, we are to use much discernment when it comes to giving. As for God's desire for us to take care of our uh, of ourselves as a society, we are even told in Proverbs 19:17, th those very powerful words. See what it says. It says, "He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given." He who gives to the poor actually lends to God. You become a creditor to God. What a blessing because God's payback methods is through blessing us. And many times and in many ways far beyond the physical temporal blessings. I think this is one uh, of the very few times when God owes us something and yet his payback surpasses anyone else. You know, I want to bring you uh, the Talmud. The, the Talmud has a wise saying on the matter which is written in Shabbat, in the book of Shabbat 63a, how to give. It says, there we read that he who lends money to a poor man is greater than he who gives charity. And he who helps a poor man to earn his own living is greater than all. It is true. Better than to give material thing is to give the means to get those material things. You are, you are training up that person towards success in their personal success and livelihood. This, by the way, is a wise uh, saying. And considering the law about the poor, we are going to see some now very touching uh, commandments here. We, we, we have seen in verse 11 of chapter 15 that God reminded the Israelites that there will always be the poor among them even among us and he formulates some powerful protective laws because I want to tell you when there is when they are disadvantaged people they are always abuses this is where the spirit gives us a case study about those who become servants or slaves because of their economic situation to them, God sets his attention and gives laws to alleviate the servitude and to protect them. It is in verse 12. There he sets them a Shabbat of freedom. 
If your brother, a Hebrew man, or a Hebrew woman is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. First, you know, this law serves to limit the time of serving or servitude. Okay, But in it, there's a great principle that prepares the reader for the coming laws dealing with our fellow men. This principle that permeates the Mosaic law lifts up men and women as being created in God's image and being God's ultimate property. Through this command and those that follow later in the, the book of Deuteronomy, the Creator claims his own and warns of any abuses that one person would exercise over another. The point is that no man can own another. Every man or woman belongs to God who created them both. No man can pretend to own another person. Now notice God's concern for the freedman, it, what he says in verse 13 and 14. Now, when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your winepress. From what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. Now, after serving for seven years, at the Shemitah year, that is at the sabbatical year, when the servant actually goes because now he's free the owner is commanded to give him as much as he can carry and from the best that he has because of the services that he the the, the, the slave if you want or the servant rendered to him because man is not a commodity man is created in the image of God and there is no such things as free labor in the scriptures no one should be exploited because man belongs to God. This is the thrust of the law. While at, the, at this time slavery was rampant and the respect for man was dependent on his social status, God corrected through the Mosaic law. God created, corrected this approach through the law by lifting up man to one who is again protected by the Almighty God. And the problem of abuse disrespecting and underpaying one's employee is something that has followed men throughout the centuries. It is brought back in the law of the Messiah 1500 years later in James chapter 5 verse 4 where James spoke to those who were blinded by their riches and see what he says about God. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. These people actually were not bringing their, their employees. They found in them a source of revenue because the poor employees could not fight back, so they were stealing their money by not paying them. This God is watching, James says. James says that these things reach God's ears better than, than pay your own employees. And the reason God asked the Israelites for paying one's wages is found actually in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 15. It is because they themselves were slaves in Egypt. In fact, there's something beautiful when you go back to Exodus. There too, uh, and, and this is important, because before the Exodus, that is, before the Israelites left, God asked the Israelites to go and get paid by the Egyptians. 
He sent them to go and get gold from the Egyptians before they departed in the wilderness. We read this in Exodus 3.22 and see how it is formulated. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. You know, the Israelites <coughs> needed to get paid so that the Lord will not further punish the Egyptian. This is perhaps what is behind all this. And by the way, you, 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 should, you should ask what that word plunder is doing here in this verse. By definition, by the way, to plunder is to rob somebody, to steal by using violence. And almost all the English translations have this word or a synonym like it, even the French translations. Why would the translators, translators use this word here? This must be another indication, again, of a biased attitude toward the nation of Israel. We, we put the translation to plunder in question when we look at the original Hebrew word, which actually is Natsal. Natsal, it means to deliver, to rescue. And that fits well the biblical context. By getting payment from their work, the Egyptians were delivered from further judgments from God. They just experienced the ten plagues. Out of grace, God asked the Israelites to go get payment for their work so that no further judgment will come upon this country of Egypt. And the Egyptians actually did pay. They seem to have understood, for they have seen and experienced the plagues. And because God is a witness <clears throat> and sees all things, and because we know how hard it can be for an owner to let go of his cheap labor, God adds in verse 18, see what he says of chapter 15 of Deuteronomy. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Here it is written that the slave is worth double of a hired servant. The owner would have paid a salary to a hired servant, but not to his slave. And God reminded the owner of this great deal that he had. And so he, he ordered them to give him as much as possible when the slave actually or the servant leaves. Just like what happened with the Israelites when they left Egypt. See how the Lord takes good care of the poor. So the man was free to go after the sixth year. The seventh year was a Shabbat of freedom for him. And there is something, I want to tell you again, very beautiful, it, and that reveals to us how thorough God is for the welfare of the individual, and especially of the woman. Did you know that if the servant was a woman, she was not allowed to go so easily? This we learn from Exodus 21, verse 7. See what it says. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Why? Many, many have complained and say it's not fair. A man can go after the sixth year. Why make it difficult for the woman? But the prohibition reveals an even deeper concern for the woman servant. Here we see that God is more concerned about the safety of the woman than anything else. How, how, how can we understand that? See what it says in Exodus 21.8. 
If she does not please her master, who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. You know, where it says that before she goes, <coughs> the law says that she had to be redeemed. What does that mean? What the law says is that if there is no one who goes out with her, uh, you know, if there is no family member to accompany her to her new home, she cannot go. Why? A redemption, by the way, was to be done by a family member. Just like the law of redemption, which is in Leviticus 25, in the same way that Boaz redeemed Ruth in Ruth chapter 4. So if she had to go, a member of her family was to come to take her. The Targum of Jonathan actually is more specific. It added her father himself should come and redeem her. Why this requirement for women? The world as it was, was not easy for a woman who would be left by herself and without protection, walking in the streets of the village and traveling alone. So the law is designed to protect her. See how concerned the law is for the woman here. I find this to be most beautiful, and this should give us much comfort, because as he cares for the woman servant, so he cares for each one of us. This is a great part of, uh, of the book of Deuteronomy. Let me just give you an introduction now to chapter 16. We have only a couple of minutes to go, because right after and so timely, what happens is that the Messiah emerges. The book of Deuteronomy, I want to tell you, is truly a guide that reveals to us some facets of the infinitely profound and unsearchable mind of God. As minute as these facets are, compared to the fullness of his nature, to us they are great revelations. They are words of life, words of life, as Paul titled the scriptures in Philippians chapter 2. Here in Deuteronomy 16, the Israelites the Israelite that is, is commanded to sanctify three periods of time, you know, that are found in the feast of uh, the Lord. Each, every Israelite was commanded to present himself three times a year at the temple to celebrate these three feasts. But why these three feasts? Let, let's read verse 16. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Why these three feasts? These three feasts are part of the seven feasts of Israel. These three feasts have in common a, a, a description of three different major offices of the Messiah, which are marked by three different dispensation of time or period. The first one is the Passover. The Passover which brings the Israelites back to their roots and reminds them how they were delivered from slavery through the blood of the Lamb itself. The second feast mentioned in Deuteronomy is the Feast of Pentecost, Shavuot. This was the time of the first fruits. The, the Israelites at that time would parade to the temple with these first fruits uh, uh, that they, they, they would 
offer themselves through a ceremony, that they would offer, that is, through ceremonies. In the prophetic plan, this feast marks the birth of the body of the Messiah, that is, the church or the congregation of God. It separates the first and the second coming of the Messiah. The third feast is the one that symbolizes the establishment of the messianic times, when finally Israel will be the priestly nation. And the relationship between these three feasts, and this is important, could also be seen in that they each mark a time of a new dispensation. Passover stemmed the dispensation of the law. Pentecost stemmed the dispensation of grace. Tabernacles point the dispensation of the kingdom of the millennium. And these three feasts also mark the three ministries of the Messiah as described in the scriptures. Passover marks the, marks the office of prophet. This office was fulfilled when Yeshua was on earth to accomplish the Passover. Pentecost mask marks that is the office of priest. The Spirit of God could only come once the Son was sitting at the right hand of God fulfilling his function of priest. And tabernacles marks the office of king. When the Messiah will come back, he will come as the king of kings. May the Lord bless you. This is all the time we have. Next time we'll go deeper into this great book of Deuteronomy. Don't